Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court ends its winter recess. Court watchers tend to think of the winter recess as a quiet time with the justices traveling or teaching. But this year, the recess was anything but quiet. The justices agreed to take up a pair of cases involving the consideration of race in university admissions. Justice Stephen Breyer announced his intent to retire after this term, and a divided court reinstated Alabama's new congressional map, even though a lower court had concluded that it likely violates the Voting Rights Act. There'd been any doubt that this was shaping up to be a blockbuster term. I think those doubts have been fully removed by now. Joining us today is someone who knows about blockbuster terms. David Savage has covered the Supreme Court for the Los Angeles Times for 36 years. David, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Amy. How does this term, you've covered the court for 36 years, compare to some of the other blockbuster terms that you've covered? Well, it sure looks like a big one. The one that always comes to my mind is back in 1991-92, 30 years ago, because it seemed so similar to where we are now, that in a very short time, a couple years, there were a series of new justices came on the court. Justice Scalia came in 1986. Everybody knew he was going to be a strong voice. A year later, Lewis Powell, the swing vote, stepped down. Anthony Kennedy replaced him. 1989, they were sort of split 4-4-1 on abortion. Uh, and, and then the two strongest liberals, uh, William Brennan and Thurgood Marshall, retired in 1990 and 91. And lo and behold, you get to 1991-92 term, as I say, 30 years ago, there are eight Republican appointees on the court, one Democrat, the one Democrat's Byron White who thought Roe should be overturned and continued to. So it looked like this was stacked up to be a a court that was really going to do something fairly dramatic on abortion. And you know how it, anybody who's followed this sort of know how it came out, but I don't know anybody who predicted how it came out then. That is, you remember, they took up this Pennsylvania case in the spring of 1992. Rehnquist thought he had um, six or seven votes to basically say uh, abortion is not a fundamental right. It's a liberty interest, and it can be overcome by the state's interest in protecting fetal life. Uh, It turned out, though, Sandra O'Connor wouldn't go along with that. She had her undue burden view. Justice Souter, who was still new and sort of unknown, was a big, believed in precedent. And as a matter of precedent, he didn't want to go along with overturning Roe. And then to their surprise, Justice Kennedy basically came to them and said, I think I'm closer to where you are than where the chief is. And they then started and and did what the famous um, sort of joint opinion that they agreed to uphold the right to abortion set in Roe but to allow more state regulation. And when that opinion came out in June of 92, it was a real earthquake. Uh, I think it's the biggest, most surprising decision in all the years of the 30 some years I've done, other than maybe the 2012 healthcare case. Because as I say, going into it, everybody thought there were seven votes to restrict or pull back on abortion. And it turned out, push come to shove, there weren't. Now this, (laughs) <laughs> We're now in a sort of similar situation. Think of 1991, by the way, when Clarence Thomas, when Thurgood Marshall stepped down, the most liberal justice, 
replaced by Clarence Thomas, the most conservative justice. We had sort of a similar situation in 2020 when Justice Ginsburg. She's replaced by uh, Amy Barrett, uh, one of the not most conservative justice. So the court has moved. It sure looks like uh, very far right. And now we'll get to see whether this is a court that in some way is like 91, 92, that wants to maybe limit or pull back on abortion, but not overturn it. It sure doesn't sound or feel that way, does it, Amy? I mean, you've listened to the arguments and written about them. This seems like a different group of justices. I, I've sort of said to friends, you know, when you, you ask or listen to, you know, Justice Gorsuch say, who was the justices he most admires? He talks about Byron White and Justice Scalia. If you ask Brett Kavanaugh, who he most admired, it was William Rehnquist. He gave a long speech on how much Rehnquist was his hero. Justice Barrett always talks about Justice Scalia. Would you remember in the Casey case, there were four dissenters who said Roe should be overturned. William Rehnquist, Byron White, Antonin Scalia, and Clarence Thomas, the four on the court now. I think that sort of, in my view, sort of hints about uh, where this term may end up. I want to tease this historical, I don't know if you can analogy out a little bit more, because I remember, I remember the ending of this story very well, What I don't remember quite as well, sort of what did people think, what was your impression of where the court was going to go after the oral argument? You know, it sounds like, you know, Souter going to O'Connor and Kennedy, that all happened after the argument? Yes, yes. Um, I had a book coming out this spring, so that spring I did a lot of interviews, and I remember interviewers would say, well, do you think they will, the court will overturn Roe versus Wade? And I said, uh, yes, eventually. In other words, I thought Rehnquist's view was that the Pennsylvania case was a series of regulations. We didn't, they didn't really need to flat out overturn Roe. But he was also prepared to write an opinion that would basically say there is no fundamental right to abortion. And everybody would know the sort of handwriting on the wall. And, you know, I just say, Amy, I don't think anyone predicted exactly how that would come out. The argument in April suggested that Kennedy and uh, um, O'Connor wanted to focus on the regulations and ignore the big issue of Roe, but they had been split 4-4-1 in the Webster case two two or three years before. Um, And I think they decided that there was no way to avoid it, that if the chief was going to write an opinion that says, essentially, there is no right to abortion, then Kennedy and Souter and O'Connor basically thought, we need to decide. And they ended up, as I say, in, in this was in May. Rehnquist didn't know about this until the end of May. Scalia blew up about it and was, um, you know, this basically fractured the relationship between Kennedy and Scalia. They had been fairly friendly. They came on the court about the same time, similar background. And wow, you know, that it fractured, you know, you you followed it all those years. I mean, Scalia would never miss an opportunity to write an opinion, making fun of or putting down Kennedy. I remember going to see him that fall. And I I said, uh, I take it you weren't too happy about how things came out with the uh, Casey case. And he said, that doesn't begin to describe it. <laughs> and he, he was, he was really, you know, he spent years being upset and angry about 
Casey. So it really fractured the court. It also, I thought was the biggest decision of that era because it said, this is a conservative court, but we're not going to go back and relitigate and overturn the decisions of the Warren era and the things like abortion and affirmative action. In, in other words, it, it was going to be a conservative court, but not go, go back. And I think that actually was the way things played out in the 1990s. And that's why I think this year, this term will be very important to say, how is this new court, you know, where, where are they going? Is it going to be sort of a moderate, moderate conservative uh, court or is something much more willing to go back and overturn and throw out precedents that they thought were wrong from the 70s. And, um, and, and we will see, I think, in June, which we'll know a lot more about what this court is going to be. Right. I mean, you know, there's the, the line that reporters trot out after oral argument about, about how it's always hazardous to make predictions about the outcome yes. of the case based on oral argument. But it certainly seemed after the oral argument in December that there were several votes to overrule Roe, you know. Mm -hmm. So I guess, as you say, we'll find out. We'll find out in June. Um, what else has stood out to you so far this term? Well, you said in the introduction, you know, I, I remember Rehnquist used to say is, <laughs> used to say just casually, well, you know, no one knows what we're going to do, but they know when we're going to do it. You know, this court would hear arguments and, and, and say we're going to have decisions at 10 o'clock on Tuesday. And that seems very, you know, in, in the past, doesn't it, Amy? I mean, there's a lot of the last couple of years with increasing frequency, the really big, hard questions come up in the way of these emergency appeals that the court has to act on, on sort of a, you know, an emergency basis without, frequently without arguments. And they may hand down a, uh, an order at midnight or whatever. We never know when they're gonna come. And so, and it, I don't think anybody thinks it's a good idea. I don't think the justices think it's great to have so many issues coming up so quickly that they have to act on. But if you have lower courts issuing injunctions that block federal regulations under Trump or under Biden, or, or like in this voting case from Alabama, they feel like they need to act quickly and they've been very willing to do it. So I would say the most surprising thing is how, how many, I, I can't tell you, you know, you and I would talk about these cases in the press room and you talk, we could talk about, oh, in March, they're going to hear this and in April, they're going to hear that, which seems like a pretty big case. Now, like two weeks away, something new may pop up on COVID or whatever. And in a very short time, a big case comes up to the court and they're going to act on it on a very quick basis. So I, I find that the covering the court, uh, at least procedurally, feels a lot different now than it did five or, or 10 years ago. And we haven't even gotten to the midterm elections yet. There's always that to look forward to. Do you think that this is a, a practice that's here to stay when they have something like the vaccine cases or the Texas abortion case? They're going to say, okay, you want us to hear it quickly. We'll hear it quickly. Well, I, I, I sure do think it seems like it's here to say in the sense that, you know, this began in, I don't know, 2015, 2016 with the increasingly 
situations where courts would hand down national injunctions. When Trump came into office, you know, the whole the pattern, he issued a series of very strong regulations on immigration or, or whatever. Uh, immigration rights groups, the ACLU went to courts in San Francisco, judges would issue and uh, injunctions, nationwide injunctions, until they deal with the nationwide injunctions issue, seems to me the courts got to be in, the, is going to be in this situation that increasingly these issues come up to them directly and Either they can say, no, we're going to cut back on nationwide injunctions, or they're going to say, we can stand back and we'll allow some things to go go ahead, even if we don't approve. They could have stood aside and allowed the uh, order in the Alabama case. It was very easy to draw two very compact, uh, coherent uh, black majority districts in Alabama. I was surprised when you look at the map. It was not hard to do that at all. They could have stood back and let that take effect, and then do, as the Chief Justice said, hear arguments on the case next term. But instead, their inclination is to, uh, <laughs> we're the Supreme Court, and and we're going to step in and decide. So I don't see how this ends anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, Justice Thomas has been beating this drum about nationwide injunctions for a while. You'd think that after the, the last few years, he'd have a more receptive audience. I thought so, too, other than that, I take it like a lot of things. It seems like it's easy to identify the problem. It's hard to identify the right solution. And that's the thing. It's it's uh, it's not easy to say what the correct solution is. So let's look ahead. The the court has three more argument sessions left and then will issue a lot of opinions because they, they really haven't issued that many opinions in merits cases yet. But what, what merits cases are you watching for the rest of the term? Well, um, there are a lot of regulatory cases that I'm going to um, watch and then try to decide what to whether to write about them. Because there's a certain level of, if you're writing for a general news audience, there's some cases that sort of defy simple explanation. So I'm inclined to listen to a lot of arguments, pay attention, and then decide, even with arguments, my editors always had sort of a limited appetite for arguments. If it's a big case, people are interested in the issue. You can explain it. And there's a whole lot of middle level cases where the court, you know, we would get out in the press room and say, what do you write about that? You know, the Supreme Court today struggled with the question of blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, spend an hour arguing. It's not easy to write a story. If they can't figure it out, how are we supposed to figure it out? And, and it's so... Um, you know, the arguments are good, but they're sort of complicated and dense. And they're, so they're easy. They're hard to digest and make news out of. You know, I like the case, the the, uh, the case of the praying football coach. Uh, I think it's called Kennedy versus Bremerton. Yes. And one of the reasons I like that, this may be not the right way to say it, is it's easy to, you know, put forth the facts in that case. And ordinary readers can say, oh, yeah, uh, I'm not sure what I think about that. But in other words, the coach. He's a, he's a coach and he, he, he regularly gets together students and prays on the 50 yard line. And at some point the school said, you know, please don't keep doing this. On the one hand, everybody would agree. I think that a teacher or anybody, the student has a right to privately pray at school. That's not a problem. You can sit at your desk or sit in your office and pray. On the other hand, I think we still agree that school teachers and school teachers shouldn't stand in the middle of the hallway 
in the morning and say, everybody gather around me, I'm going to do the morning prayer, you know, because the people think, well, you know, under the separation of church and state, the establishment, the school shouldn't be promoting religion. That's not their idea. So what is something like this? Is it simply an extension of private speech and prayer? Or are we getting into a situation where if the person, a teacher in a very prominent way, imagine if the drama coach or whatever said, I'm going to come out at the end of a, uh, at the beginning of each play and, and, and pray on the stage before the play begins. I think that school say, well, yeah, that's probably not a good idea to be, you know, having this sort of public, very visible display of religion in school. That's not our job. So anyway, I think that's a, that's an interesting case. Everybody can sort of look at the facts and sort of think, hmm, what's the right answer here? And so I, I'm, I will write about that case because it's because it's so um, approachable. Last year, we had the cheerleader on Snapchat. This year, we have the football coach. Yeah, exactly right. And I think in both cases, you know, they, they probably are not the most momentous issue the court will ever resolve. But it, they're interesting. And people with their ordinary life can think, you know, what's the right line between you know, the free speech and the court, the, the school issuing some, you know, limits on what's appropriate at school. Mm-hmm. I mentioned at the outset as well, Justice Breyer's retirement. And he announced in the end of January, which is early compared to some of the other justices who've announced their intention to retire. Do you think that's going to affect how the court operates for the rest of the term? Well, the short answer is I don't know. I sure. do, Breyer, and, and you know, in some sense, I mean, I thought everybody sort of knew he was probably going to retire soon. And a lot of things he said, that book he did, they all seem like they were sort of done with the notion that he's going to be, he's nearing the end and is probably going to retire this term for the a lot of reasons we all know that midterm elections, the Senate could switch and, and uh, Nominations have gotten so polarized now that it seems like you can only get your nominees through if you're the president and and you have a slim majority in the Senate. Both sides have dealt with this. So we knew he was going to leaving. So I don't know how it'll affect things in the spring. You know, he does. Every time I listen to Justice Breyer talk, he, he reminds me so much of a, in some sense, a figure from the past, a very good past. He still talks as if he... He remembers that period in the late 70s when he worked in the Senate and worked for Ted Kennedy and Strom Thurmond and the Republicans and the Democrats could get along, could work out compromises. He always liked to talk about that at the court. You know, he'd like to talk about how he could talk with Sandra O'Connor and and, you know, they could work out, you know, sort of pragmatic middle ground positions. And he still he still sort of yearns for that time when the you know, that the. the, the the court can be in the focus in the middle and on some sort of practical and maybe minimal uh, decisions. It sure doesn't look like that's the era where we are now and where we're going. In other words, it seems like I would bet two or three years out, we're going to get more of these. The liberal justices are not going to have much chance of winning things account, and they're going to be more outspoken. And I think we saw some of it this term with uh, Justice Sotomayor and talking about the, sh- you know, the, the sh- shame of the court, that, that, that it seems like we're going to be in a more divisive and polarized period, whoever replaces 
Justice Breyer because the court is in a different position than it was when he came on the court in 1994. Yeah, I feel like that that was part of what was so frustrating for progressive groups and liberal groups when he didn't retire last year, that he would give these speeches and talk about how everyone should get along and try to reach out across the aisle and the progressive groups would be saying, that's just not how it works anymore. But to, to turn to your, your point, we always had a sense of covering the court that by the end of the term, everybody was sort of getting on each other's nerves at the court, that, that the nerves would be fraying. And, but it seems like they're already at that point right now. You're talking about Justice Sotomayor in, in you know, the, the stench of the court. Um, and then there was sort of a pot shot taken by Justice Kavanaugh at Justice Kagan in the Alabama case, talking about the catchy but worn out rhetoric about the shadow document. And those two you know, are, are get along usually pretty well. They sit next to each other on the bench and you see them chatting. Do you think this is unusual? Or as you say, it's, it's sort of can be attributed to where the court is right now in terms of the conservative liberal divide? I think it's a little bit unusual and I think it's a arbiter of things to come. I, I uh, It seems like, you know, I've said to people, if you watch, listen to the arguments in a big case, like the abortion case, listen to how the liberal justices sound. <laughs> because if my impression is that if they think the issue is still in play, Justice Kagan is very smart and very shrewd about asking sort of questions that sort of probe the middle of the case. But there are other cases where they came in and they seem really angry from the beginning. They seem upset and angry. And that sort of tells me they sort of know this one's already cooked, you know, that they're not there's not a lot of opportunity to um, work together to find some middle ground position that, that, that both sides are sort of dug in. And you know, I don't know, but it sure seems like we're going to have a lot more of that. And, you know, the, the, the patent cases or the bankruptcy cases or whatever, they, they, you know, they can work out unanimous agreements. But, you know, the big abortion, guns, race, religion, they seem my impression is pretty far apart and there's not a lot of uh, opportunity for middle ground. And, and so I think we're going to hear more of the sort of sharp exchanges and sharp opinions where they, it's clear they really disagree. We will be listening for those. The court is back in session soon and hopefully we can have you back another time to talk about this some more. David Savage, thanks for joining us. Great. Good to talk with you, Amy. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our production team. Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser. <laughs>